Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. Season 8, Episode 14, Rob Salkowitz. Hello there, everybody, and welcome along to Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. My name is Len Sultana, and uh, every time we go live on the show, it's to talk about Comic-Cons, con culture, and all of the fun and games that we get to enjoy at those events when we get to see them running, which means we're also covering uh, the culture of virtual conventions, which have taken their place uh, in the age of COVID. This is a take two of a, a stream that we were trying to do on Wednesday. Uh, due to technical issues, uh, it kind of all went a little bit uh, sideways. But thankfully, we've been able to uh, reschedule uh, with our special guest who's uh, joining us for the next 45 minutes or so, 45 to an hour, however long we can uh, keep him talking, because uh, he's always uh, entertaining to uh, get into discussion with. We have Rob Salkowitz joining us. Hello there, Rob. How the devil are you, sir? I am terrific. Uh, great to check back in after we were so rudely interrupted yeah it, that was that wasn't fun um it's got to be said i was i was trying every single solution to hand to try and get it working and it just it, technology was fighting me every step of the way it was so frustrating but um if anything it's kind of serendipity um things have kind of worked out because while we were on air um we did have uh, a number of announcements uh, that came out Literally, uh, I think as we went live, um, so we can kind of fold that into the discussion and the conversation as well. Um, like I say, we've got virtual conventions happening um, uh, across the globe at the moment. Uh, I know that we've got um, uh, Digi Indie Digicon, which is celebrating in. Um, uh, let me get this right: uh, independent creators from Ireland. So we've got that event uh, taking place. We've got the massive event that's taking place uh, with Thought Bubble. Um, obviously, that is one of the biggest co uh, comics-related events uh, that takes place here in the UK, operating in the digital space. They have been partnered with uh, San Diego Comic-Con for the last couple of years. This was the first year they kind of collaborated in um, advice on how to run a virtual convention and how you can definitely see shadows of what they're doing with Thought Bubble with the way that they did uh, Comic-Con at home. And indeed, we've got Leanne D who's watching at the moment. I'm sad because I was supposed to be in the UK right now for Thought Bubble. Uh, yes, uh, safe to say, uh, I think we all uh, would love to have uh, been uh, jetting off and uh, enjoying events across the globe. Um, just to recap with yourself, Rob, um, whereabouts are you based? Because you are, I believe, Seattle. I'm in Seattle, that is correct. Right. So um, we kind of touched on this. I know that we may be rehashing on a couple of the uh, topics that we talked about on Wednesday. But um, let's uh, just recap about what Seattle's situation has been in the age of COVID over the course of the summer. What's it been like for yourself? So Seattle was the epicenter of the first uh, outbreak of COVID in the United States. So we we got it first and we're, we have sensible local authorities who, you know, got on top of things fairly quickly. So our, after that initial set of panic, uh, it's been fairly good here. I mean, we've been under lockdown. The, our local businesses have suffered uh, very sadly. My own local comic store went out of business over the summer because they just couldn't uh, 
handle because the rents here are very high. And so uh, independent businesses in particular um, that can't get foot traffic are going to suffer. Um, it's it's kind of shaped up. A, a, it was looking a lot better three or four weeks ago, and now things are back off the edge of the cliff. And I think that we may be facing another lockdown in the, in the next uh, week or so if, if things don't get better. So it's, uh, you know, it's up and down like everywhere else. Sure. Uh, I mean, I think back in a couple of years ago, I, I was talking to several people about how um, industries and businesses need to evolve and change. And I was particularly craving about it. Uh, I was saying things like evolve or die was kind of the just the, the flippant off the cup remark. But now it's just we're seeing businesses, like you say, really taking a massive brunt of this. Um, admittedly, those that are um, adapting to like mail order, to uh, doorstep delivery, uh, that kind of thing, it, those are seeing some kind of um, olive branch and uh, some way of uh, getting through con uh, the, the situation. But well, then you have, like you say, I mean, the la the last time the comics industry had this kind of a catastrophe, it was self-inflicted, right? I mean, it was stores over-ordering, it was catering to speculators, it was issues internal to the business, and you could rightly look in the mirror if your business was was bad and say, that was on me, those were bad decisions that I made. What's happening here is, you know, systemic, and that if you're in a situation where you've got a good location, high rent, you know, a, a senior, well-paid staff, that you know, and you made those kind of decisions. You were well merchandised, and you had all kinds of stuff in a in a well lit you know, like you invested in your store. Those are the people that get are getting screwed harder than the people that 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 didn't. So um, it's it's almost like that your your good decisions as an entrepreneur during ordinary times redounded not to your benefit. And yeah, it's good to be adaptive. It's good to be able to sell stuff online. But you know that's that's not the magic bullet for everybody. And if you're locked into high costs, that's gonna that's ultimately gonna be more of a problem. And if you had followed the advice that was prevalent in the industry in 2017, 2018, 2019, which is turn your stores into a social hub, do gaming nights, do stuff that that diversifies so that you're not just doing transactions, you're doing community and in-person experiences. Again, those are the kind of investments that really come to bite you in the butt in a situation where you just can't have people in close proximity in your store. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing that we kind of, I mean, certainly what we're going to get into uh, today is the business of uh, pop culture, because that is something that you are uh, particularly, you are well versed in. Uh, if you can give everyone, for people who may not know your work, I mean, it's great to have you on. Uh, it's great to have you back. We've had you on a couple of times, but for those perhaps that don't know um, who you are and what your background is, a little bit of an introduction, please, to yourself, Rob Southwoods. Sure. So I am uh, a writer and sayer of things about comics. Currently, I am a, a senior media and entertainment writer for Forbes. Uh, I also write for Publishers Weekly and for ICB2, which I'm sure your listeners know is the, the trade uh, publication for the comics and gaming business. Uh, prior to that, I wrote a book called Comic-Con and the Business of Pop Culture, uh, I had written several other business books before, but I wrote that one, and now I'm the guy who wrote a book about Comic-Con, so I've managed to use that to unite my professional interest and my long-term personal interest in comics. I also teach at the University of Washington here in Seattle, um, and I teach a class in comics as communication platform, so I've been doing more stuff on the um, academic side as well. Yeah. 
Because certainly one thing that um, has been uh, fun to see over the course of the year when we've seen virtual conventions happening is yourself showing up at uh, virtual cons as a, as a host, as a very engaging uh, 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 steerer of conversation. Um, what's been your um, take on virtual conventions um, in terms of uh, audience reach? Because I think that's the, the general res response that I've been seeing from people who have been putting on cons. Uh, certainly when you look at um, people have really studied the numbers, for example, of Comic-Con at home, and people have been looking at some very niche panels that uh, would have been put on by uh, Comic-Con International, where they would have been put into a room where they would have had an audience of anywhere like 50, 80, 120, something like that, relatively small. With, they're getting tens of thousands of views online, and people are seeing and engaging with these topics. From yourself and your own perspective, um, what's it been like uh, to be part of this virtual convention revolution this year? Well, I mean, I think that it's a couple of things. It's like, as we both know, you know, for every one person that's lucky enough to be at Comic-Con in person, there's 10 people with their faces pressed to the glass, you know, uh, that can't get in. And, you know, when you're online, you don't have that physical limitation. So I think all of the people that, that might have been interested in, in all of the things that go on at Comic-Con, and then, of course, when you're there, even if there's one thing you've got circled in the program, well, there's 50 other things going on at the same time. And it's always a triage to say, well, you know, like that one sounds interesting, but I've heard that before, or I really want to see this other creator. And when it's asynchronous and you can just go and binge watch one after another, you don't have to make those kind of choices. You don't have to make the hard decisions of, or, or, you know, the, the big investment of going to Comic-Con. You don't have that fear of missing out. Like even, you know, if you're sitting in a panel room and there's stuff going on in the exhibit hall. So I think those dynamics work to the benefit of it, I think we were able to curate really good conversations. Um, I did a panel um, around the legacy of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, which if we had actually done that panel at Comic-Con, we've had to do it behind chicken wire, I think, because people would have been throwing things at, you know, that, that's, an, that's an issue that tends to elicit some strong opinions um, in fandom. And we were able to have a, you know, a, a civil conversation among, you know, recent biographers of both Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, uh, you know, to present their points of view um, and then, you know, it goes up on YouTube and we get, we get some feedback on that. So, you know, like th I think there were some good opportunities. There was also, um, I was part of a panel on teaching comics in higher education, which again, as you were saying at San Diego, that would be like in the upstairs in room, like 22 D or something off in the corner. And it would get the, you know, 50, 75 hardcore people that go for the academic programming. Um, and this way, I think it got out to a lot of people. It was a great conversation. Paul Levitz and Karen Green from Columbia and, and people like that were involved. Ed Cato organized the panel. And I think that got, last I checked, was like five or 6,000 views, which is, you know, ballroom 20, you know, for, for, for numbers for, for San Diego. So I think that, that end of it definitely worked out pretty well. Um. I mean, we're going to be talking more about uh, the, the kind of the layoffs uh, element of uh, um, DC Comics uh, in, a, in a bit. But uh, the conversation has come up this week um, when it comes to comic conventions and virtual cons, because it definitely came as part of the conversation as the package of the whole uh, conversation about what DC are planning for the future in terms of their outlay, in terms of their engagement with fans. We've seen DC fandom. We've seen what you can do when you get yourself a couple of good editors 
uh, someone with a working knowledge of After Effects, and you get this very slick presentation. And it worked particularly well. If anything, um, there was the pros and cons of having the panels and the content available literally from one site, from uh, their own player uh, on their own server, uh, which meant everyone was diverted. The eyeballs were in one particular spot, uh, and it was all contained. The content wasn't available past that we weekend. It was you literally had to be there to engage with it. There's the cons of that. Uh, the, 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 that's the pros of it. The cons, obviously, is that um, the, the conversation is very much limited to that weekend. DC okay. fandom. Talk about the DC fandom virtual experience. Yeah. yeah. The wish point then, um, the conversation has been this week that DC fandom will now be the model for DC moving forward when it comes to their convention interaction that they would not probably uh, attend something like San Diego Comic-Con, they wouldn't attend New York Comic-Con, they wouldn't attend Emerald City or whatever, because they have no need. They can then just focus their attentions on this one weekend. Is that something that you feel that is, they would do? Or do you feel that they would kind of stick to what they're doing at the moment, but then focus their energies on DC fandom? So there's two levels to that question. One is like on the general strategy of what like what they should be doing as a brand, and the other is what they will be doing because of their particular business orientation right now. But I mean, I think that I've been observing this for a long time, but I feel like the rise of San Diego caught the popular culture, media, entertainment industry kind of by surprise. They didn't expect that this independently run, nonprofit, weird niche event would instantly come to occupy the center of the entire media entertainment universe. And so, you know, they were all being kind of reactive to that. And I think that if if Marvel or DC or Hasbro or Disney, you know, or any of the, the big entertainment brands, you know, Sony and Microsoft on the gaming side, all of that stuff had their druthers, they would much rather have a controlled experience where they set the agenda, they present their stuff. They don't have to share the stage or the exhibit hall with their deadly competitors they don't have to appear on even footing with everybody because you know that's not their mindset they they want to be in charge and they want to set this up but the fact is that comic-con came in and it took over and it seized that that territory and if you came in lately with uh you know later with a you know with a d23 or something like that then you were basically saying to the fans we want to give you a more limited experience we only want to show you our stuff. We want to treat you as a as a marketing test bed and a captive audience for our brands and our licensors. And we're going to charge we're going to charge roughly the same as what Comic Con is doing. And you know, but we're just going to make it less cool for you. And you know, the fans are are rightly thinking, well, all other things being equal, I'd rather be at a show where I can see all of my favorite stuff and I don't have to choose. I don't have to want. You know, it's like well, I, you know, it's like I like. Uh, uh, Marvel Universe, but I also like Doctor Who or Supernatural or, you know, so why not go to a place that has all of the big tent? I think that that has been very frustrating to the business side for a while that they have to play nice. And also that because of Comic-Con is a nonprofit and they don't have a board that's responsive to the same supply and demand pressures as, as the commercial industries, they can't throw their money around in the same way. I think Comic-Con is like, come if you want, don't come if you don't want. I mean, I think that they take it in stride that is a little unnerving 
to people that are used to getting their way by by pushing a large pile of money over the edge of the counter. So, you know, I don't think that the long way is I don't think that the San Diego Comic Con model has been a comfortable one for that side of the industry for a while. They've been looking at ways to get that, but they can't chip away at the, that fan model as long as San Diego Comic Con is there occupying that space in the middle. The fact that they're and, not, and then in yeah, and then in twenty twenty, it's not there. It's not there, and so the, all of Comic Con's advantages of you know exclusivity and capturing media attention and all of that stuff are negated in a in a virtual world. They're offering programming. They're putting their branding out there. They're selling their merchandise. They're doing the you know ante at the table to remain in the conversation, but they don't have any of the advantages that they bring to bear in the market anymore. So a Warner Brothers can roll up, who isn't an entertainment company. They're not an events company. They're an entertainment company. And now we're playing on their ground. Now we're putting up videos on distributing to a mass market and marketing and getting people in and showing production value and all of that stuff. Um, and that's suddenly where they've got the advantage. And Comic-Con was sending you a package of stuff saying here's how to make a decent youtube video and here are the you know we're going to slap this in our template and put it up on youtube and call it good and that you know bless their hearts they're they're really good at what they do but that's not what they do so you know the balance of power shifted all of these people that went and saw fandom which i didn't do personally i think my wife uh, checked out a couple of the panels and said they were really good and and enjoyable and she's been doing a lot more of the virtual conventions than i have so i kind of rely on her opinions about what's working I suspect, I suspect, yeah so it's been suspected being flipped between myself and uh, uh you uh because for myself i've been swallowing as much of the virtual convention content as i could and caroline has just gone if it's not in a room with my friends enjoying something in person i am not interested at all so didn't see a single panel didn't see a single piece of content hasn't seen anything from this year uh, I think there's been a little bit, yeah, a bit of a flip, the flip from uh, myself to you. But the thing about the thing about the the fandom is that everybody that signed up for that now they've got a mailing list, they've got a basis for kicking off a live event, so they got to do a soft launch where there was no expectations of of how good it was going to be. And I think people came into it and they thought, oh, this is cool. I would take a flyer on this in person. Maybe if I can't get a badge to Comic-Con next year, this would be an acceptable substitute. And so they're in a way better position to launch a live event if they want to. So I, so I think strategically, if, if Warner Brothers or, you know, uh, AT&T, Warner Media or whatever they're calling it now, um, is, you know, is interested in doing that, they have a, they have a much better platform in 2021 than they did in 2019 for that. The larger question is, you know, what does what does Warner Media want DC to be inside of their larger entertainment brand? Do they still even see that as a comics thing or is it a lifestyle brand? Is it in fact what they want with DC more appropriately presented in a you know entertainment brand forum as opposed to a comic convention? And you know, I mean, I think that they're, they're, nobody knows exactly what their what their business moves with the with DC Comics meant, other than the fact that they probably saved themselves some money on salary. Um, but you know, personally, I, I believe that this is you know another step in a direction that they've been signaling for the last year, year and a half about what they want the future of DC to be, 
as very, very different from what we old time DC fans have always understood DC to be. I'm also very curious. I mean, uh, Andrew Dickinson's bringing up um, a very a good point, which I'll, I'll dive into in a second. But uh, also the uh, the equation to uh, D23. I can imagine that the the, the people at uh, Warner Brothers and at uh, DC Comics have been paying very close attention to Disney and D23 um, as its own separate convention, uh, its own separate event, because well, then it's uh, it, it gives them a sense of how big an audience there is, what kind of revenue they can generate, how much it actually costs to put on a very focused, uh, localized event for their own brand. Um, well, I can imagine they've been paying attention to that model very carefully. I mean, Disney knows a thing or two about live events. So it's like, I think they're in a little bit of a different, uh, you know, um, set environment than, than Warner Brothers or uh, Warner Media is for that. So. Anyway, that 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 I that I think that, that it's a much more natural thing for Disney to create a you know a branded in-person experience because they have the in-house expertise and they've got long years of of knowledge and training and, and everything about how to do that. So and I think their objectives for it at the outset were a little bit different also. Like they I don't think they were looking to be a Comic Con killer. I think Disney's brand on its own is is well understood and distinct from comics culture in certain ways that they well i i went to d23 and i went to the year the year that it was the year the weekend before san diego comic-con when everyone was just thinking ah right d23 is going to be a comic-con killer that didn't know uh so somebody who went there and you suddenly you realize especially as somebody who is a fan of marvel is a fan of the films and whatever I was. I felt like an outsider. I felt just as, as somebody who attended it, as somebody who's a fan of Disney. The theme parks, the the Fantasia crowd. There was a definite vibe of okay, those Marvel people are those Comic Con people are <laughs> they're treading in our house. Uh, so there was a definite vibe of D twenty three. So I definitely get the idea of what Disney. Uh, it's a different. Um, vibe entirely it's 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 a different uh, crew but like i say i think it's more the 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 administration the the the, what the audience that uh, is drawn to, to that event i think that's what um wb may have uh, uh, looked at uh andrew's to, the, what the point that he was bringing up was the ancillary costs are a lot less for d23 though and that yeah because it's just it's focused it's it's not only that but it's local it's to them it's over the road literally um so that i can understand and not only that but um i can imagine as well there is this real sense of um the the talent that go there are kind of going under the umbrella of disney they are there's a little bit more of a happy clappy vibe there's it's a little more it's, it's less than you are being paid dragged to the comic-con to promote your wares whereas with D d23 there was that vibe that okay we are in safe grounds as it were also if you look at the venn diagram of the people who go to d23 and go to disneyland afterwards is probably a total just a circle so i'm you know like Disney, that's something i learned you they know how to queue certainly at, uh, at comic-con uh when i've attended um there's got to be direct marshalling there's got to be kind of people and there's got to be a way of controlling that amount of lines 
uh, with D23, it was literally uh, dots on the floor, and they knew how to line because they, <laughs> across the road, they do this on a day-to-day -day basis. So yeah, it was it was interesting to see that the contrast was uh, interesting. Let's go through a couple of the questions because Andrew uh, is someone who's very interested in this conversation. He's got plenty of things to dive into, and we'll then dive into the business of the. Uh, the virtual conventions and the way that the comic conventions have had to adapt. So I think we're definitely talking about D23 and fandom here. Uh, Andrew's talking, uh, would it take Marvel, Warner Brothers, Sony, all passing on San Diego Comic-Con to break the mystery of San Diego Comic-Con? I mean, maybe, but the advantage of San Diego Comic-Con is that, speaking as a member of the entertainment media, we're a, we're a lazy and cowardly and superstitious. <laughs> Right? We like to have we like to have one place to go to get all of this news at once. And if there's four or five different uh, events that you have to go to to get the stories about what's coming up, um, then nobody's going to get that spotlight as brightly. So, um, you know, the, the economy of scale that's grown up around San Diego and the fact that you've got all of the announcements happening at once, you've got all the star power focused on San Diego for a weekend. You've got this wonderfully photogenic background of tens of thousands of people in costume, you know, in the glorious San Diego sunlight as the backdrop to these, to these uh, shots, to these stand-up shots where they're talking about these announcements. They're bringing on the, the A-list stars in front of that background. Um, that's, you know, it generates something like some 10 billion media impressions over the weekend. That's, you know, in, in social media terms, that's golden. And also all of the influencers that are there that are spreading this stuff out through word of mouth, the, the media value of having one event for Comic-Con, even if you have to share that with all of your competitors, is going to be really hard to replicate. Um, so unless they don't want that anymore, unless they feel like, okay, we don't really need that one center of attention you know, um, we don't need a Sundance Film Festival. We don't need a South by Southwest or whatever that one main event is to focus all that spotlight. Then the hell with it. We'll do our own thing. I think that's too tempting for for everybody to collude and say, "Mule boycott." San Diego is on its own. I don't think they're. I don't think they're going to do that. It's a. Um, it's like game theory. It's a. You know, the the prisoner's dilemma where the, where where one side folds and the other side doesn't. And then they end up winning everything on the table, and hmm. nobody nobody wants to be that. Nobody wants to be the the to allow your competitors to have the stage all to themselves. Sure. Okay. So, like I say, that's it's an interesting um, object lesson. It's an interesting interesting discussion with DC fandom, but it is a unique one in that it's focusing very much on its own individual core business, and um, it's the what they're going to do with it is uh, something else entirely. When it comes to the business of fandom, or fandom, sorry, not fandom, fandom, um, then we're talking about conventions, organizers that um, are attempting to, or have attempted to um, translate what they do in the physical space into virtual conventions. Some have done it reasonably well. Um, for example, we have seen Mainframe uh, do a great job with Baltimore Comic Con. Uh, that has been very ambitious, and not only that, but they were one of the first ones out of the gate. To be honest, they, they used very similar platform to what we're using right now, which is um, Streamyard. 
Uh, it's a very low maintenance uh, for guests setup in that uh, you mail out a, a, a link to uh, a guest. The guest comes on at a specific time. It's all done very, very easily. Um, for, and it's uh, the platform that uh, Mainframe have used. Um, I, for myself, the three tiers of a virtual convention are also kind of the three tiers for a physical one. The, um, the panel content, uh, so going into a room and uh, taking on board uh, any information in that regard. The interactions with talent and also the retail um, uh, aspect in terms of those on the other side of the table. Some of the conventions have got it right. Some of them still quite haven't cracked that. Certainly that third nut is uh, definitely the one that's uh, been the definite issue. Which ones do you feel have managed to get the balance as close as possible in this land of no conventions and a virtual convention landscape? Well, I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, I think that ReadPop has done very well with the, with the programming side. Um, I think that their programs are very compelling. I think GalaxyCon was one of the ones that was, actually GalaxyCon was first out of the gate and they actually built the platform that was since adopted by ReadPop. So um, they do not only really good panels, but they're really good at monetizing the celebrity interaction part on the back end. And they do, um, you know, you, you, can, you can do meet and greets, you can do, you know, the, the sort of um, super, almost as like a super photo op because you get to keep the video clip, you get to interact with the talent privately, uh, for a while, you can get mementos of that. You know, you can print out your screen grabs on a T-shirt. And, you know, like there's there's all kinds of ways that that you can do that in a virtual setting. And for the fans that are in it for that part of it, the you know people have been trying to cordon off that side of the conventions for a while because there's so much money there. It consumes an awful lot of the emphasis of the organizing of the physical conventions, and it really doesn't add anything for the attendees that are not into that. So you've got all of the celebrity photo ops and stuff like that off to the side in these giant lines. And there's people that are there just for that, that are spending, if you're spending $500 on a, you know, on a photo op with the, you know, with the Star Trek cast or something, that's $500 that you're not spending at retail then and there in the convention floor. So there are parts of the business that would benefit from being able to say, look, we're going to do this side of it online which is more convenient and cheaper for the talent. It's more convenient and cheaper for the organizers. It cuts out the middleman of these photo booth operators who own the data and take a pretty big chunk for you know, a fairly routine service. So, I mean, I think that that's an area of the business that people have had their eye on trying to consolidate for a while, but there's been no, you know, it's been hard to say, there's been no impetus to do it. Yeah, doing it online is not better than doing it in person. But now that we've been doing it online and people are used to it, maybe that's going to give that a leg up. So they've been doing do it. Do you think the pricing has been uh, competitive in that regard? Because the one thing I saw, when I, certainly when I saw Repop, when I saw um, a number of virtual conventions doing the interactions, I felt the, the pricing was just a little bit too much, uh, that it was it felt like someone was trying to make up the lost revenue. Uh, for the virtual conventions or for the... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's what the market will bear. And there's people, if, you know, if people pay it, they'll they'll pay it. I mean, that that's, um, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if you're not having to pay to fly the talent there first class and put them up and assign them a staff person and do all of the stuff that goes with, 
you know, talent management at a convention. There's an enormous savings there. Um, but again, they, a lot of these companies have to keep people on payroll um, because they don't want their organizational capabilities, you know, to vanish so that when we do get live conventions back, they don't want to have to go out and rehire and retrain a bunch of people. But unfortunately, that means that you've got a bunch of people that are that are sitting there on staff with nothing to do and you got to pay them. So they're in a tough spot. I mean, it's a, I, I'm, uh, I feel bad for the people that are in that business because again, this was not of their making. This wasn't this wasn't like a like a cyclical thing where we got oversaturated and you know a bunch of cons got shaken out because they were badly run. This was like an extinction level, you know, meteor hitting the earth, and you know it's not that and it punishes the good along with the bad. And you and you don't want to be in a situation where the people that know how to do good shows are locked out of the industry because they got washed out in this in this crisis, and then the people that come back are the you know the people that can do it for the lowest bid because that's going to mean that that you know it's going to set the entire industry back quite a bit if they don't have that institutional knowledge to be able to put on shows once we flip the switch back on again speaking of which uh what do you feel um is going to be the balance between uh the virtual convention aspects and the uh the physical convention um not just in terms of uh, the putting out of panel content and uh, kind of the representation of uh, an online presence once we have a physical convention back. What do you think it's going to be like in terms of talent that is just going to turn around and say, well, why don't we just Skype it into a big screen? Um, what do you think the online kind of equilibrium is going to be like? Well, I mean, I think if you look at this purely from the, the fan side, that, that, that I think we're missing a component of these conventions, which is really important, which is the interpersonal connections and the sort of serendipity. Um, I think that a large number of professionals attend conventions, not just to you know, make money selling their stuff and talk about their latest projects, but also to meet, you know, <laughs> get out of the basement. I mean, even fans and people that are aspiring to get into the industry, having that oxygen of, of you know, and being able to run into people at the bar and talk about your projects. I mean, if you think about the number of great comic projects that came out because a writer and an artist happened to run into each other at a convention and realized that they were just the perfect match for a particular thing, that's what we're being deprived of this year is, you know, the, the, the fruits of all of those you know, just random encounters, it's really hard to replicate online. The only place that it even tried to do it, as far as I can tell, was Lightbox. We talked about them in the in the abortive previous episode. But the thing about Lightbox is that, yes, they're a consumer-facing show if you're a fan of animation and illustration, but it's really a trade show, and it has an educational component. So their panels were a lot of how-to stuff and less about like, you know, meet the artist and, and talk about stuff. It's more like, you know, here's how to, here's how to do authentic looking digital watercolors or whatever. And you watch a, you watch a exhibition of that. But then behind the scenes, they had a, um, like an appointment system where everybody that was logged into the, everybody that was registered to the convention could put their name on lists and put up their resume and you could go, uh, because the, the first edition of that show that was in person in 2019, turned out to be a gigantic uh, job fair for people that wanted to get into animation, video games, illustration, all of that. And they didn't want to lose that component to it. I think in the future that unless the bigger fan shows can 
have something like that both on the fan side because fans love to meet up and also on the professional side so that you can have that professional networking it's never going to you if you can have the opportunity to safely get together in person that is always going to be the preferred option even if it's a cost even if it's a pain in the ass um it's going to that's that's going to be preferred for that reason sure um andrew's brought up a question or he's brought up a comment first uh, about gen con online it was fun and you could interact with the streams i think that's one like i was talking about the, the three tiers but certainly for myself the one element um that needs to be addressed and really work for a virtual convention is that live interaction it was something that was severely missing from um san diego comic-con's panels in that they the, the comments were locked um there really was just the pan the the um the panels uh, going out and uh, uh, transforming from unlisted to uh, to public the the videos then just went out um, there was no real kind of dialogue with the uh, the conversation ongoing in the comments because the comments were locked um other conventions uh, have gone the other way obviously like we said we've talked about mainframe mainframe very much are about the interaction with the guests uh, and with uh, sorry with the attendees people watching and they're very much about the uh, the q a uh, discussion uh, which is um, uh, their take on it I think that people are still trying to work out a way, certainly if you were getting to a very large convention experience like New York Comic Con. So uh, we're talking uh, the Repop um, uh, metaverse uh, model. Then it's talking about, then we're talking moderation. Then we're talking someone going into the, the Q&A to take out the detrius of uh, comments. So that's a whole other aspect. Um, but he also mentions about this, and this is about the one-to-one uh, the -one aspect of it. I mentioned Omaze on Wednesday. Uh, do you think they try and go and catch the interaction side of cons? Um, I'm sure Rob's got um, thoughts on this, but for myself, Omaze, uh, I mean, for myself, um, Omaze have um, a certain brand styling in that they are about the charitable aspect of their business. They are raising money for charitable works. Yes, they can do and uh, promote these one-to-one -one interactions where you meet the fans, meet the guests, and whatever. Um, and yes, that is an aspect of the virtual convention uh, experience now. Um, but I think they deal more in the charitable aspect of it. And I think if they shifted away from that, then they would lose what makes Omaze Omaze. Um, thoughts, Rob? I have no thoughts. I'm not familiar with their <laughs> with their stuff. Okay. Uh, basically, there's the, this uh, organization which a celebrity can go to and say, right, I want to raise money for um, building a school in Africa. Uh, if you uh, buy a ticket and you can buy one for five dollars, um, you can go into a raffle to go out for a meal with me, uh, and we'll go out for an for an evening. People then can buy 100 tickets, 200 tickets, 500 tickets, et cetera. And the money, 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 that goes to the, the charity. Someone gets a uh, goes to a premiere with Tony Stark or something. That's what Omaze is. Um, it's a great idea, um, but I think if they shifted what they did and tried to do like the one-to-one -one interaction, and sold that, then I think they would take that charitable aspect of it, and I don't think that would be what they wanted to do. And yeah, um, 
the other thing then is about the i mean we talked about the the way that uh they could see a balance of the physical convention and the virtual convention this at the end of the day also means that conventions have to come back um we're looking at um 2020 being a complete wash uh and we're looking at the start of 2021 as when that could be uh the kickback off of a new normal i know that you have taken into consideration the recent announcement of a possible vaccine uh for covid which could alleviate some of the stress uh, but we are seeing ever increasing numbers certainly in the us uh, certainly here in the uk as well as the second wave really uh, takes off and we're going to have a very hard winter indeed we would usually be looking at something like ec2e2 and emerald city at the beginning of the year um around the february march time as kind of like the kicking off of the larger convention obviously you have the smaller ones but that's when the major convention season kicks off what do you feel is the landscape of conventions when do you feel that we could be safely looking at conventions coming back in 2021 i mean i'm very encouraged by the vaccine news i've been watching the the announcements about the developments of it um i think that the distribution of it and production and everything is still a is still a question mark but i feel like the scientific breakthrough is is promising enough that we can really start thinking in terms of certainly in the second half of 2021 that you know that as people become vaccinated and get feel more confident about being out in public um that 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 could definitely be there but as with several things that are happening in the united states right now that the the tunnel is getting darker before the light appears so um you know i mean that that's tough as I wrote about in Forbes on, I guess, Wednesday when we when we spoke is, so I was covering the ReadPop announcements that they have uh, secured physical locations and, you know, uh, accommodations for uh, San Diego, um, you know, that's the ICB2 post, but then the, um, they're going to be uh, doing Emerald City in early December and then a week later, C2E2 in Chicago in December of 2021. And when I talked to ReadPop, they acknowledged that that's not ideal timing. But the problem is that every uh, event, yeah, sorry in advance for the Forbes. <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And the fight is awful. Um, that uh, so many shows of, across the spectrum, you know, trade shows and like boat shows and garden shows and all this stuff that takes up space in these convention centers is doing the same thing. They're, they're, they've canceled their 2020 shows. They're scrambling for bookings at the end of 2021. So the big, even the big pop culture shows have to take what they can get. And this is what they could get, so this is what they took. Um, if it starts looking like we'll be able to go back in midsummer and those dates start opening up over the summer, I think it's possible that they would rethink those plans if they can, if it's logistically possible. It's just there's a huge amount of lead time. Also, ReadPop acknowledges that it's not ideal to have the shows that are traditionally the season starters that late in the year because then you don't want to do the 2022 edition in March having just had one in, in December. So I think it's going to take at least uh, one or two cycles for that to regularize. And what you might see is Emerald City 2022 in June, 
and then that'll give it enough time to for the next year or you know in, in September or August you know it's like it it'll, it'll take it a, at least a year for them to find their feet to become those shows um, that are that are the start of the year again and then also you know there's the additional issue of getting people to Chicago in the middle of December um, which most people wouldn't do on a bet. But you know what? If you can make a show in Chicago work in February, you can probably do it in December. It doesn't make any difference. Um, and there will be so much pent-up demand at that time that I think fans, you know, all over the country will be breathing a sigh of relief to do it. So, you know, I mean, it, they're, they're playing the hand they're adult. I'm glad that they have dates on the calendar. It gives their partners something to look forward to, gives their staff something to look forward to. Certainly it gives fans something to look forward to. And there's plenty of time for them to work through the uncertainties and figure out what what they need to do to make it right um we talked about uh briefly on the wednesday before and i think it was about this point where the conversation kind of sailed off the tracks um and it was about that concertining of uh of the uh certainly the 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 read pop shows um the 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 idea of having the shows happening back to back um is that's first of all a rather bold um decision to make but i suspect that was more the availability of location and oh okay you're shaking your head well they're both regional magnets so um you know i mean that unlike new york comic-con and even new york comic-con draws primarily from the east coast and and it gets us some overlap at least the work that i've done on it uh, on their audience in the last um a uh, couple of years says to me that that's major, majorly a, a super regional or a gigantic regional show that gets some international traffic, unlike San Diego, which is a genuinely international event. But C2E2 is mostly Midwestern United States. It's a destination show for some people, but if you live you know, anywhere in that 300 mile radius around Chicago, that's your show. And likewise, Emerald City is for the Northwest. I mean, if you are I would say west of Minneapolis and north of San Francisco, that's your show. But that's a pretty big chunk of territory. And it's not, you know, um, it doesn't overlap with that. So it's going to be a, a big issue for the organizers because they're going to have to, you know, this year Emerald City was scheduled for two weeks after C2E2. And that was kind of a sprint. Um, so God help these poor people that have to do it. Hopefully they've got their teams rested and ready and ready to go. And then any exhibitors that's going to try and do both shows, like the Tower of T-shirts guy or whatever. Look, they do a show a week anyway. It doesn't make any difference. They're probably set up for it. So, you know, that that's those are going to be the only issues. Sure. And then uh, you look at the fact that, I mean, you, you touched on it uh, briefly just then about the fact that the, uh, the schedule date would be um, sort of like just a few months uh, uh, after the year. Do you feel that there's that those dates are going to shift in more into the summer, at which point you start really getting into uh, other convention, uh, mixing in with other uh, big events as well? And uh, whereas where they are traditionally, they stand alone. They have their a very determined audience and a very uh, the fandom knows where they are in the calendar. When it starts mixing into the, the later on in the year, that's when things get interesting. Look, I mean, the situation that we're in right now is um, is so dire that I think the logistical problems that that will arise with the resumption of live events look like small beer right now compared to True. 
Okay, yeah. So, I mean, I think they'll work it out. Pop is a big company. They've got a whole, not just in the United States, but they've got shows all over the world that are being impacted by this that they have to juggle. I mean, they have to do a show in Seoul, South Korea, and in, you know, Mumbai, and, you know, like all of these places in addition to their schedule of U.S. shows, and all of that stuff has been screwed up. I mean, it's a nightmare, but... It's be better to have a nightmare of how are we going to do all of these shows in the limited amount of time than, oh, shit, we don't have any shows to do and we have to keep paying our people and, and we're doing these online events that are, you know, that, that's, that's, the, that's the issue now, I think. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's, it says it um, on the, uh, the actual sites as well for both C2E2 and for, uh, uh, for Emerald City that... Um, Yes, we'll be coming back for these dates. This is when we're going to be doing these shows. But they also uh, very much are promoting uh, the uh, Find the Metaverse, which uh, was obviously the uh, the New York Comic Con and MCM event, uh, which they they ran. Um, it wasn't as big a success, and I think it was also the fact that it was coming off the back of DC fandom. That did suck up a lot of the energy and the juice of that particular, uh, uh, the virtual convention landscape. Um, with uh, metaverse, it, it's still something that is evolving and is still growing. Sorry, I thought I heard something there. It's, it's uh, a phone is ringing in the background. Oh, fair enough. Um, so uh, I think there's definitely um, something they can learn from and uh, something they can develop. Um, it's the fact that they have spent so much obvious time, money, and effort into making metaverse as big as it can be. Um, I don't think they're just going to let that investment just stop. And I think. Certainly for next year, you're going to be seeing more of what Metaverse can be. Well, don't forget the last year made some investments in esports networks and video gaming stuff that turned out to pay off really well. Like the, that side of their business actually ended up doing, you know, is doing great. And so, and also it gives them some competencies in doing some, some online and virtual stuff that they didn't have before. So what seemed kind of incidental at the time and just them sort of grabbing up something because it was available turned out to be a, a smart play for them. Sure. Okay, so that's the actual fandom. Uh, fandom. I keep saying fandom. I, I can't help myself. Um, that's the fandom and the uh, the pop culture celebration side of it. But then it's a case of the, the content as well, because it is something that you, you study. It's something that you, uh, you uh, are well-versed in the, the business of um, pop culture. Um, uh, we'll start with uh, something that Andrew's bringing up, and certainly with the terms of films. Um, I'm looking forward to the conversation I'm going to be having with uh, the editor-in-chief of uh, Den of Geek in a couple of weeks' time. We've already seen that uh, uh, Disney are moving uh, their WandaVision show into next year. We've, heard, I believe, um, has Wonder Woman moved? I believe that's it's gone. A very, very seems very likely to me. Yeah, there's that one. Well, the two lights, Wonder Woman and um, uh, Black Widow, are the two remaining tent poles uh, for this year. Um, and we've got Andrew Dickinson saying, uh, "Do you see any films getting one billion ticket sales now from uh, uh, from now on? As there are probably going to be very short runs due to the turnaround. The whole um, dynamic of what um, is a tent pole film now, and getting people into the cinemas and the the whole evolution of what um the the i want to say the live experience of going to a cinema and enjoying a film um is it beyond repair at this point well it's getting there see the real problem is that if if 
you starve the theaters for too long and you've got all of these consolidated theater chains and you've got AMC and Regal and stuff like that. If they go out of business, the all of the investments that have been made by them to to scale of all of these screens and all of that gets lost. That's a very hard, you know, once the once the locomotive comes to a screeching stop, the amount of additional energy that you need to get that up and running again may be insurmountable. I don't see anybody putting up billions of dollars to reinvest in a network of movie theaters if the one that we've already got goes under. So the fact that these guys are teetering and the fact that the, the current upsurge almost guarantees any, 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 any um, government jurisdiction that doesn't shut down public events like movie theaters is deeply irresponsible right now. Um, no matter what the efforts they're taking on on social distancing, those kind of things where you're sitting in a in an auditorium for two two plus hours, you know, with with other people in an indoor space, just doesn't sit with what we're what we're up against right now. So that's really precarious. If we if they can get through this, if the government step up with money and say we're going to backstop your your loans and investments so that you're not going to go out of business then I think as soon as people are able to get back out in movie theaters, it's going to be the hottest ticket in town. You'll have trouble with shows getting under a billion dollars because everybody's going to want, out, want to go out and do this thing that we haven't been allowed to do. But getting from here to there is the real, is the real problem. And you can see that these sort of makeshift efforts of, uh, you know, of, of, of uh, Tenet and uh, the worst one, unfortunately, was New Mutants, um, which just kind of landed with a thud because they tried to release it I, I suspect it might have been not that good in the first place. I haven't seen it. So it might have been it might have been a thing. It's like we're just gonna push this out the door, you know, come what may. But you know, it's well, I mean, I think you can also pull up uh, examples like Milan. Uh, I think you can pull up examples like uh, Artemis Fowl. These were due to get big screen um, releases. They recognized that they weren't going to get the automatic one billion audience that um, would normally have uh, just gone out. Uh, just as a reaction to just getting out there and enjoying uh, a film of that scale on a screen. Um, well, what what I, is when they when they lose their shirt like that, it hurts the stock price of the studio, and then it it impedes their ability to raise money for the next blockbuster. So if you need four hundred million dollars to you know produce, procure talent, and market one of these blockbuster films in this environment, nobody's going to open their wallet for that. Looking at 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 what just happened. You know, because the film industry is very conservative, they're very scared of anything that's not proven. And if all of the evidence that this is a sure thing vanishes, then that money is going to evaporate, and it's going to make it very hard for the pipeline going forward. So that means that in come twenty twenty four, twenty twenty five, when everything is ostensibly back to normal, that you know that bubble in the bloodstream is going to you know reach the brain, and you know we're going to have that we're going to have that aneurysm of no movies of any scale. For a while, as because all of all of the stuff that we did this year is piled up, and you know that that that's a delayed action effect. I'm really curious as well um, because I have not gone to a cinema. Um, we've obviously had efforts here in the UK, social distancing, F, um, lots of cleanliness, uh, real strong uh, protective of their audience uh, doing their best to continue the business here in the uk and certainly in the us it's a very similar effort um i've been paying very close attention and I've, we've also had uh, i've had comments and 
conversations with the likes of Mark Serby, uh, who's uh, obviously a, a strong defender and proponent of uh, the, the cinema experience, and has reminded me that um, while we have seen super spreader events, while we have seen people going to birthday parties and uh, uh, COVID has spread from those events, there's been no recognized um, uh, instance of um, COVID being spread from a movie theater. I'm curious, do you think that the movie theaters or the cinema chains have not made enough promotional effort to get the message out that we are doing our absolute best to make this as safe as experience as possible? Or do you feel that they're just under overwhelmed by the, the message of stay safe, stay home? Look, it's, I mean, it's against the grain to, to suggest it, and it's possible that they haven't had that many events because they're just not getting that many people. I mean, something like air travel, um, you know, my wife was just in, it just flew down to Arizona to see her brother and sister a couple of days ago because of emergency circumstances. That was not discretionary travel. It was like the costs of not going exceed the cost of going. And so that's the calculation that you make for something that is a risky activity like getting on an airplane. Um, but if you have a big screen TV in your house or you've got, you know, uh, uh, you know, a VR headset here, you got some way that you can enjoy entertainment in the privacy of your home. The, you know, the, the benefits of going out in a discretionary environment just seem to not be exceeded by the costs of it right now. It's just, it's, I mean, people do it, but it's, it's hard to justify Justify it, yeah. Okay. Uh, and I think then to wrap things up, because I don't want to keep too much of your uh, Saturday. Uh, we, heaven knows we, this being take two, uh, we've already taken up a lot of your time. Uh, but I think we'll definitely talk about DC Comics and we'll talk about the, the, the industry of the comics industry um, in terms of how it's been affected and also the reaction of these uh, the companies. Um, obviously, the, the, the main uh, or the, the headline grabbing um, uh, effect has been uh, the layoffs from DC Comics, the closing and of uh, Diamond, uh, the shifting of distribution by some of the uh, the business. Um, which do you think has been the hardest aspect of the comics industry that has been struck? Is it a case of the talent that has now moved on to crowdfunding to get a direct uh, connection with their audience? Is it the infrastructure of uh, getting books out onto the shelves? Is it the shift from uh, floppies to uh, trade paperbacks because of the the, the the actual titles being pared down? It's a big question, but which do you think has been the biggest aspect of comics that have been hit and struck? Look, I thought that the publishing side was, was precarious even before all of this happened because there's too many publishers and too much new content coming into a market where there's no clear way that we've expanded demand considerably on the for adult-oriented periodical genre comics. The, all of the growth has been for kids and YA stuff, which is its own thing, and in the format of uh, books and, and uh, trade collections as opposed to uh, individual titles. So a lot of this, I think that we were due for a shakedown this year 
that that many of these promising companies that have put out really good content, like you know, like an Aftershock or Ahoy or Black Mask or you know, some, all of these companies that have come to the table with A-list talent, like great stuff, good ideas for books. Nobody's got the time to to do all of that. So that was that was uh, un looking unsteady to me even before all of this happened. And you know, the fact that um, we had a an interruption in the serialization of the content. I think uh, Todd McFarlane, who I interviewed in, in April about this, made a really good point that, you know, publishers of periodicals really need that cadence of they need people coming in, buying the latest issue, talking about it, being leaning forward and being into the story. And if you get them off that habit, if you break that routine, it's very hard to reestablish. So I think that a lot of people, like I haven't read since my local comic shop closed, I haven't read a lot of, you know, serialized comics at all. There's a couple of series that I was following a little bit that I'm kind of curious about that I'll check out digitally. Um, but most of what I'm getting is when people send me trade paperbacks and stuff like that, or new new graphic novels to review. And that's, uh, you know, my experience may not be typical, but I think that that, that part really hurts. And that having the, just the routines of the fan culture disrupted in a meaningful way um, is something that we're going to have a harder time coming back from no matter what they do on the business side. Uh, because one thing that the comics, so comics have done a great job, comics big, you know, in the big sense where we're including Scholastic and, you know, uh, Abrams and, and these the publisher, you know, um, uh, first, second, these publishers that have been very good at bringing young readers in. What the young readers are reading is not serialized stuff. Like they don't go into the comic shop week after week they wait, you know, for the for the annual Dogman release, or they wait for the, you know, and it's and all of it piles up in one place. Getting the people that started off reading Raiden and Felgemeier in the in the aughts and the early teens to become readers of serialized periodicals, there's no easy way to do that. There's no good bridge from the kind of content that they enjoyed as kids, unless it's manga and it's an ongoing series. But again, manga is its own thing, and it's separate from, yeah. you know, from the other side of the business, also. So DC and Marvel are belatedly kind of getting on the train with this, and uh, Marvel has struck up agreements with IDW for sort of middle years, sort of animated style stuff, and with Scholastic for early years and kids' books based on Marvel licensing. But those deals are like two years old, so we're not seeing the fruits of that. DC has done a little bit better in that DC has always had a strong licensing program of their characters for kids. And there's publishers that specialize in doing sort of DC, you know, chapter books and kids books and, and stuff like that with Superman and Wonder Woman and, and, and all of that. Um, but again, they've, they're kind of missing this, this stretch between what do you, if you're reading, you know, uh, Swamp Thing Kid or, or you know, uh, Swamp Kid, how, do, how does that then transition into turning that into a reader of Justice League Dark, right? I mean, I don't think that there's, I don't think that there's a really a smooth on-ramp to get somebody that's like, uh, that's 11 or 12 and is aging out of their kids' stuff into their mainstream books. And I think that DC's new leadership has recognized that, the, that, that their model for the last 40 years of cultivating this super intensive fan base that knows every jot and tittle of DC continuity has hit diminishing returns. And they that, that moving forward, 
DC is the publisher of Batman, Harley Quinn, Batman, Watchmen, Batman, Suicide Squad, Batman, and Wonder Woman. That's what they publish. And, you know, that, that anything that's not in that set of stuff, um, did I mention Batman? Um, I think you did, yeah. Yeah, is, um, you know, is, is so incidental to their business that it's not worth doing anymore. And I think that the moves that they made on the personnel side reflect that. Do I don't you think it's a bad business I mean, decision for them, but the fan in me, the old time DC fan is dying because that's, to me, that part is DC. And um, Bleeding Cool ran a piece the other day about, um, uh, whereas Marvel is licensing their kids stuff and keeping their core brand being their adult oriented Marvel universe titles, that it would behoove DC to do the opposite. And if DC wants to be moving forward, the publisher of media tie-ins and kids books, and that's what DC is, then it seem, would seem to me to leave room to license out legacy DC universe to a niche publisher like a Dynamite or um, you know a, a Valiant or somebody that, that, that has competency in the direct market with connected universe stuff and has the the sort of you know gray-haired creators and fan base that that will buy that stuff but the problem is at least according to uh the report that i saw is that dc's cost for that license right now is prohibitively high and nobody can make money on it um which to me is a shame because it's just leaving money on the table because uh, i think there's fans that would continue to buy that there's publishers that would be happy to put it out. There's creators that would want to work on it. And for the retailers, it would give them something to put on the shelves that their that they're, uh, outside fans would like that's not, you know, the super mainstream DC stuff that DC wants to focus on. So I wish, I you know, I hope they find a way to square that circle because I think that would that would please the fans, it would, it would solve their problem, it would give them free money, it would make the retailers happy, it would make the creators happy. Um, so that, that to me looks like a good way forward for DC if they wanna do it. I think right now they're in the mindset of, we just wanna do what it takes to survive and we don't wanna bring additional hassles on ourselves. So like, screw that. And you know, yeah. and I know where they're coming from, but. I mean, you, you talked there very much about the DC umbrella. I want to just open up the bubble a little bit, and I don't want to sound craven about this, but do you think the age of COVID was an example, uh, was an excuse for Warner um, and AT&T to do what they've been wanting to do anyway? Oh, absolutely. So, I think that, I think they're preparing, preparing a lot of wood that they feel is dead wood out of the way. I mean, I wrote, a, I wrote a Forbes story last summer having seen what happened to the DC booth at Comic-Con and reading the tea leaves then about, uh, you know, where does DC fit in, in AT&T's strategy moving forward, where it seemed very clear to me that this was the smart move for them, that, that if the company is run by people that have absolutely no sentimental attachment to DC as anything other than what it is right now and what it could be, as a moneymaker in the future. If you're just taking that very cold look at things and you get rid of a Dan DiDio and you get rid of all of these people that have that, that legacy attachment to old DC for reasons not business related, 
then this is the direction they were going to go. And I don't even think that they needed the excuse of COVID. I think they they uh, they were. This is definitely what they were going to do anyway. And uh, you know, I feel really really bad for all of those people that that really dedicated their life to that idea of the company that are now right before the holidays having to find a new job in this environment. So yeah. you know, that's a, that's a that's a rough one. Sure. Um, well, I'll wrap it up with the, just a question that's come in from Andrew, and it kind of circles back around to uh, uh, comic conventions and DC. Um, with, when losing uh, their, their events manager, this is some that we were talking about uh, just prior to us coming on air. Um, does it sort of signal that they may drop out of cons, or do they refill that role when cons reopen again? Um, this is somebody who uh, I, whose name escapes me, and but... Um, uh, Rob knows. Um, is it, it? I won't say Fletch. Fletcher Fuchong, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I, I knew him to speak to, um, and I knew him literally as a face that was always at the DC booth um, and was running around like a headless chicken, keeping a lot of pl plates being spun. Really did uh, a, a, an incredible job on on that on that uh, booth. Um, yeah. I think it's working back to that relationship with DC and its conventions again. Um, the question, I suppose, it also then just asks, will we be seeing a DC booth at Comic-Con again, at San Diego Comic-Con again? I mean, it just depends on what their goals are. You know, I mean, it's a great opportunity for fan engagement. It's, it, it's a, um, I think that they have to be there for programming. And, but whether the, hassles and logistics of setting up a booth that booth is a million dollar booth i mean no no two ways about it and you know staffing it and running all the talent through and all of that you know like what's the return on that investment and that's the only question that at&t is asking about this stuff given how deeply in debt they are they look at it and they say okay yeah, there's no there's no heart there. there's no heart there it's look it's straight cold numbers yeah, what are we getting for it? And so I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they, because uh, um, you know DC never was terribly engaged in conventions. Only in the last year or two did they strike some deals with Reed Pop to be more of an active presence. I think that the fact that Jim Lee is still at the company—that's their convention strategy. They're going to send Jim to every show in the, and that's going to be DC. You know, and and yeah. for I guess for if you're a fan of what DC used to be, Jim is the only thing left. So there you go. That's that's what you yeah. get. Well, I, I would have had tacked onto that. Um, yeah, you send uh, Jim Lee and Jeff Johns, uh, but now Jeff Johns has signed a uh, creator-owned with Image. That kind of says that someone's looking at the door and seeing a parachute to hand, uh, that they can, in fact, um, find alternative methods of getting their stories out there. DC lives on in the Jeff Johns uh, TV universe. If you like, if you, if you, uh, if you like DC in the seventies and eighties, watch Stargirl or watch, uh, you know, uh, the flash or whatever. That's their, that's their thing. Absolutely. Right. So we're going to uh, let you get off. Uh, thank you very much indeed for indulging me uh, and uh, coming back on for a, a take two of this particular episode. It's been a pleasure to have you on um, the pieces that I've been showing up on screen um are definitely worth uh, uh, checking out if uh, you haven't read them yet um the uh, icv2 uh, uh, piece uh, towards the post-covid comics industry 
Um, it's a much better website than Forbes. It just gets on with what it's doing. No pop-up ads, and uh, you can definitely dive into it. It's a very comprehensive piece uh, on uh, fandom and uh, the the ecology of what we can expect, reinventing conventions. It really is well worth checking out that piece on ICV. Com. But I would also then uh, point you towards the Forbes piece as well because, um, yeah, it's, it's well worth checking out. So Forbes has moved to a new model where if you subscribe to the site, um, you get a better site experience, I understand. It also helps me out. So go to my page at uh, Forbes.com, uh, whack Rob Salkowitz, um, and you can, I think, sign up and you'll get notifications for new stuff that I've written there. I've got a, I've got a couple of really cool pieces coming up. I've got a big feature on uh, African comics industry, uh, which is some really interesting stuff coming out of Nigeria and South Africa and uh, some, some new content that we haven't seen before, stuff like that. So if that interests you and you, you want to keep up with that, please do sign up for that. You can find me pimping for all of the stuff that I'm writing at Rob Salk on Twitter. Um, and... Uh, just look for me to pop up. I'm always happy to join you on these shows, Leonard. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, well, let's, let's just bring that up on screen so people can see it. Rob Salk uh, is definitely uh, worth uh, checking out. And uh, like you say, um, the pieces that you've been doing uh, have been in-depth. They've been uh, comprehensive. And they've really, while there are uh, some of us that want to have a very ro romantic nature about the uh, the industries that we enjoy. You have to kind of take a very close, not clinical, but very analytical look. And that's what you have been doing with your posts. And it's been very much appreciated by myself and uh, other people who have been keeping a close eye on what's been going on in, uh, in fandom. So thank you so much indeed. Rob, it's been a pleasure. Uh, do take care and enjoy the rest of your weekend, sir. Okay, thanks much. Take care, everybody. Take care. Brilliant stuff. Uh, do go check out those posts um, and check out the work of uh, Rob Sarkowitz because um, he knows what he's talking about. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's been a kind of drop-in episode to <laughs> to kind of fill in that gap of uh, the uh, technical issues on the Wednesday, but we are going to be back on Wednesday uh, with a, a, another sh new show. And hopefully you can join us for, uh, for that, considering that we've got ourselves some great guests coming up, not just on the, uh, uh, the Wednesday, um, but also the Sundays coming up. This Sunday, of course, we're talking to uh, Scotty Young, which is the, an, uh, an issue, an episode that I've been looking forward to very, very much indeed as a, a very uh, big fan of his work. Uh, but we're also going to be uh, continuing our Wednesday shows uh, with uh, next week, talking to Kevin Scott. Excellent writer. He's uh, got a couple of new projects on the cards. Really looking forward to uh, talking to Kevin. We are going to be having another incidental episode next Saturday. Uh, somebody who wanted to do something on a weekend, but uh, we have got something booked for the Sunday. So he's agreed to come on to join us next week. Uh, that's Al Ewing, man who's been incredibly busy this summer, uh, obviously with uh, the, the, uh, the uh, creator-owned stuff that he's been doing for Image, but also we've got uh, the Immortal Hulk, and of course that massive Empire event that he did for Marvel this year. Um, yeah, really looking forward to uh, talking to Al just to find out how on earth he's been spinning all of those plates. Mike Ciccini is going to be joining us on Sunday, the 22nd of November. Uh, he's the editor-in-chief of Den of Geek. So you may not know Mike's name, but you definitely know the site. Uh, so definitely going to be talking to him. And by then, we may know more about uh, what we can expect from um, Black Widow and also Wonder Woman 84 
by the 22nd of November, I think it's safe to say we'll get a sense of how far and how reaching the damage has gone uh, for the, the Christmas period, one of the core holiday periods for pop culture. Um, we have got some people to talk to about the 25th of November, our Wednesday show. Keep your eyes open. Uh, do follow me on Twitter, of course, on Englishman STCC. We'll uh, announce our uh, guests for the TBC uh, episodes, but uh, trust me, we've got some great names that are possibly lined up for that uh, date. And then on the uh, final one of this month, White Noise Studios, the, uh, the chaps are going to be coming on en masse. Alex Pagnadel, Ram V, uh, Dan Waters and Rhino Sullivan, all of them are absolutely cooking with gas at the moment. Uh, if you haven't checked out um, uh, Giga from Alex Pagnadel, do it. But my God, he's got himself a book that's come out from TKO that came out of a lead this week called Red Fork, which is him doing very possibly career best. All four of them are doing incredible work at the moment. White Noise Studios, um, it's going to be a great little catch-up as well because I was there pretty much from the start uh, because I did a, an MCM Comic-Con panel with them when they just got the White Noise Studios name together. Let's look at this two years later and how they have gone from strength to strength. That's our shows. Hope you enjoyed today's. Uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us on a little bit of a last-minute uh, reprieve for uh, our uh, take two of the Wednesday show. From myself, Leonard, from Rom Sabakowitz as well, do take care. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Head off and check out the Thought Bubble content, uh, certainly on their YouTube channel, Thought Bubble Comics, all one word. Check it out on YouTube. Lots of great con panel content they've been posting over the course of today, and there's more to come tomorrow as well. From me to you, take care, and I will see you on Sunday, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. GMT, in conversation with Scotty Young. Take care. Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego is a production of The Convention Collective. Visit The Convention Collective for all of your convention news and updates. And support the podcast at patreon.com Englishman SDCC.